Hello, welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I'm joined by writer Gary Suarez. In addition to writing freelance for publications like Forbes, Billboard, NPR, Vibe, Rolling Stone, Vice, The Quietest, Metal Sucks. Honestly, I could keep listing places for a very long time. Gary has been around. The point is that in addition to being a freelance writer, Suarez also runs Cabbages, a weekly newsletter that highlights new independent hip-hop artists. Suarez has also just begun the second season of the Cabbages podcast, where he talks to rappers and writers about movies, This season, the Leprechaun movies in particular. I've followed Suarez's work for a long time, so I was delighted to have him on the podcast to talk about launching an independent music criticism platform, the purpose of humor in his work, and the importance of being a well-rounded human being. Thank you for listening. So first off, congratulations on starting season two of your podcast, Cabbages. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, going to be a fun one. Looking forward to talking to a lot of rappers about the Leprechaun movies. Yeah, I've seen that you've been blowing people up on on Twitter about that. Have you gotten much response from the rappers you've been hitting up? Uh, the rappers haven't been responding, but uh, save for a handful, mostly the uh, the rockers have. I've been targeting some '90s alt rockers. I got uh, actually Eve Six. Uh, of course commented and uh peanut from 311 has also commented neither of them have actually chosen a leprechaun movie but they've chosen a movie where they could make the joke and i think that's all right so i i gotta ask why why the leprechaun movies seems like a sort of off the beaten path pick even from that sort of 90s slasher wave yeah well i mean leprechaun is one of those curious characters where there's it's hard to say why they did six movies but what they did with those six movies was take this character into new places and so you know he's been to vegas he's been to space and he's been to the hood twice and i think because of the final two movies the two hood movies they it seemed ripe for discussion on a podcast a lot of uh, folks who may not necessarily have followed all of the movies kind of rediscovered the leprechaun after maybe the first one by looking at uh, by watching these uh, these two so it seemed like an interesting area to uh, to explore you know we've talked about movies on the podcast quite a bit our first season was all about the 2020 adam sandler movie hubie halloween so it seemed to me like a good uh, a good second season option. It was, I believe, my co-host Jeff may have floated the idea first uh, as a big B movie fan, and uh, we decided to run with it. I did notice that it seems to be like it, if you're if this season lasts as long as the last one did, you'll probably be running up to St. Patrick's Day as well by the time that the season wraps up, which I feel like is thematically appropriate as well and intentional. Yes, I was going to ask because the first, you know, the first season dropped around Halloween and Hubie Halloween, obviously, as the title would imply, is a Halloween movie. So 
it seems like you have a holiday theme going. Is that something that you plan on carrying forward even into seasons three and onward? Well, I don't want to commit to season three and onward just yet. You know, we're, we're on tenuous ground, me and my co-host. Mm. And so I don't really want to commit to anything beyond this one. We've agreed to do this. We've agreed to talk about the six Leprechaun movies. We're not talking about the two reboots that don't include Warwick Davis because they're, they don't exist in our eyes. And for everything that I've seen of those have been particularly terrible. So <laughs> we're more than happy to just do these six and then see where we're at from there. And so how many times are you watching these movies that you're, you're talking about? Cause with Hubie, were you watching that before every episode? Did you need to like stay fresh? How many times do you end up watching the central movie of each season so far? Well, with the Hubie ones, we were talking about that more or less every episode. So we watched it. I can say I watched it uh, about three times, but there was also, you know, you watch scenes and you go back and you watch parts of a movie. That's one of the fun things about this stuff being on Netflix is you can just go and and, and check it out again. The, the Leprechaun movies, it's a little different because I've seen all of these films before. And so this is more of a revisit rewatch. So, you know, it gets a full, before each episode, it gets a full rewatch, but I oftentimes will watch clips separately too. And then there's additional research that I do around this. So that way there's stuff to talk about, you know, fun facts and things like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got uh, Warwick Davis's memoirs. I've watched various clips of him at, you know, comic book conventions and, uh, you know, looked up other fun facts. You know, the creators of some of these movies have done other podcasts before. So that's always uh, good to listen to. So we're trying to provide some good information in addition. But we ask our guests to at least watch it once if they haven't seen it before. I think with Hubie Halloween, my co-host watched it twice ultimately, but was resistant to any sort of rewatches. Uh, and that was one of the uh, sticking points in the first season. Mm-hmm. But we moved past that. Leprechaun movies are ones that we can all get behind. There's a few that there's a few that he hasn't seen just yet, and we'll we'll get through for the actual episodes run, of course. And do you find when you're pitching this interview format to the guests that you've had on, particularly the musicians, do you find that there is like an extra level of excitement or enthusiasm because it's not specifically just talking about their music. Like you're actually probably breaking up the monotony of going through the same usual press cycles over and over and over again. Well, there's two layers to it. One is that most of the artists who we have on the show are somewhere in the indie spectrum. Maybe some of them have gotten some bigger, bigger looks and we've had some great guests on that front, but they're generally, we're talking to indie rappers for this. So any press is often welcome because there's just this idea that the major hip hop publications do not cover these artists with any amount of real consideration or frequency. And that's, what's really unfortunate about it is that these artists, you know, they maybe have had a look, you know, a few years ago in a place like vice or maybe even a complex. And then they kind of just don't get that look again, or maybe it's that's sort of it. And that's the unfortunate situation. I've been trying with cabbages, both of the newsletter and the podcast to highlight these artists. The second half of it is if you've listened to most interview focused music podcasts in the hip hop space or otherwise, the interviews tend to be fairly dry. You know, you're asking these artists about their, 
careers. You're asking them about how they do their, their work. I find that if you're going to do an hour-long podcast, the idea of talking about something else and treating them like human beings as opposed to things to dissect and study is a lot more fun on both sides. People are enjoying the fact that we're talking like a group of people in a room, although we're doing this over Zoom. Um, we're not, we're obviously, we're not taking any risks on that front, but it feels like you're just kind of hanging out with people and getting to know people and the common ground becomes a movie you all happen to have watched. Right. And that does still have, you know, even thinking of these things as purely utilitarian products for fans of one of the artists, you do still end up learning a fair amount, actually probably in some ways it's more insightful to the personality and perspective that's behind the art than just simply like what kind of, you know, like where'd you get your beats from? That sort of thing. You know, it's, it's a bit more, it's humanizing, as you said. Yeah, that's the goal is to go for to talk to people like they're people. I think what will end up happening, what has been happening, what will continue happening with this is that we will get stories out of people that you won't get in other interviews. We'll get anecdotes. We'll get aspects of their lives and their upbringings. You know, when we had Fatboy Sharif on the first Leprechaun episode, he talked about his childhood. And that was one of the first things about how horror movies played into his relationship with his parents. Mm -hmm. And that was super interesting because, you know, his, his latest record, Gandhi Loves Children, which is a fantastic record, kind of falls into that sort of horror core style, which is why I initially wanted to reach out to him. But understanding how deep that went and actually how personal horror movies had been for him, not just to his writing process, but to his upbringing, was extremely interesting to hear fleshed out. He's done podcasts before and he's done interviews. You know, he's not shying away from any of that. But I think we got something out of him that maybe another interview wouldn't because they weren't asking the kinds of questions that would get them there. Well, in that same spirit, you mentioned on the podcast that you're more of a, a comedy guy and not so much a, a horror movie guy. Why, why is that? Why do you think you gravitate more towards comedy than horror? I mean, that just, when we talk about upbringing, you know, that's really what was, was there for me. You know, I wasn't somebody who was interested particularly in scary movies at, at any point in my life, to be honest. I've enjoyed kind of the horror comedy crossover, but really for me, I grew up from a very young age watching comedies. So I watched, you know, Monty Pythons and I watched uh, Marx Brothers and, you know, Three Stooges and Abbott and Costello. From a very young age, I was watching that sort of stuff. In addition to the, you know, the Looney Tunes and the things you watch as a child, the Merry Melodies, you know, I watched a lot of that stuff and that was something that my parents certainly nurtured in me was just that. I thought one day I might be a comedian, but that was something um, from a young age. I thought that was a thing and that never really became something for me. You know, Twitter is, is a place where you can work out some stuff, but I'm not, I'm not go. I've never done a stand up set. I've never joined an improv group. I, I have my limits, you know, but what I tried to do was to consume this as much comedy as I could when I was younger. And even now, I generally don't want to watch an hour-long drama. I don't want to watch a serious, you know, art house film anymore. I did plenty of that in my 20s, and now it's like, I just want to laugh for a little bit. I want to see something silly for 90 minutes. I want to watch a 22-minute sitcom that's actually good. You know, I don't want to be devastated. There's enough devastation out there right now. I just want to laugh. Yeah, it's funny. Like, my sister and I have, like, almost, we're kind of th that exact split that you just described. Mm -hmm. Like, she only watches, like, 
comedies and like pretty easy digestible action movies. And I'm like the pretty stereotypical like white dude in flannel who watches like Paul Thomas Anderson movies and shit like that. And I, I think it's interesting because she went into, you know, being an EMT. So she's, you know, especially this year, seeing a bunch of really rough shit. And it makes sense that she would go home and be like, yeah, I just want to watch something funny. And, you know, yeah. I'm I'm a music critic. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just ingesting, I guess, a lot of stuff secondhand instead. You know, I, I, that's the the sort of loose psychological profile that I would, that it sounds like you're also kind of describing. Yeah. Is she doing okay? Yeah, she's good. She's good. I don't mean to pry. I'm just, I'm just. No, no, of course. I mean, I brought it up myself and I, I probably wouldn't bring it up if things weren't good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, I guess that's true. You mentioned the newsletter, which came before the podcast. So I guess we should sort of work our way backwards. Why did you decide to branch out into a podcast when you had the newsletter going as well? I never did a podcast before this because I never felt that I had an idea that was worth doing for a podcast. I started the newsletter in January of 2020 based on the fact that as a freelance music writer, I wasn't seeing much in the way of growth in this industry for journalists. I couldn't, I was getting, I'm getting steady work. I was getting steady work. It was before the pandemic, but it was, it's harder and harder to get those bylines. It's harder to get an editor's attention. And a lot of outlets were closing or shrinking or downsizing and doing something myself that I owned where it's all my content was very desirable to me. And the Substack model sort of presented itself and I jumped with it. You know, we had a great first year. We, we got up to, you know, now we're a little over a year and we're over 2000 subscribers, which is fantastic. For Congratulations. Just, That's awesome. We're just a thing that I write on my couch. You know, it's not like, uh, it's no office space. There's no newsroom. It's, it's me and it's my voice. And I interview rappers and producers and I write about current events and I recommend albums, new albums from indie artists uh, to try to promote music discovery. And that's, that's the whole point of the newsletter. That's just what it's there to do. And I thought about, well, what else could I do in this? And I came up with the idea for the Hubie Halloween podcast and proposed it to my friend, Jeff, who is another hip hop fan, uh, who's again, a big movie guy. And again, into B movies particularly, but he also likes good stuff, I suppose, occasionally. Nonetheless, it seemed like a logical fit where it's like, okay, I'm going to talk to rappers about something that isn't rap music. And that's really the general premise of what we're doing here is we're not asking artists the same questions and we're not asking them the predictable questions. We're going to talk about something else and, you know, movies, TV shows, whatever it is, they're fun things to, to discuss. And it's things that we all share in common. Yes. If you're, if I'm talking to a rapper, hip hop is going to be a common ground discussion topic for us, but, if I can also find, you know, if I talk to Fat Tony about The Simpsons, if I can talk to Michael Christmas about Hubie Halloween, or if I can talk to Fatboy Sharif about the first Leprechaun movie, that's, I think, a more interesting discussion and something that people might actually want to listen to. Yeah, it's funny. I think that there, I had like this sort of pause reaction when the podcast first came out and it was, you know, you it's, you know, pumpkins, the Hubie Halloween podcast. And I was like, is this a joke? Like, is Gary pulling my leg here? But then as I listened to more and more of it, like to your point, yeah, it kind of opened up and I started to see a bit more of what you were doing and the more, you know, humanist conversations that you'd end up having as a result. I, the Simpsons one in particular, I thought was 
really fantastic. That one brought me back to all the a, a whole bunch of episodes that had completely slipped my mind. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a I'm a huge Simpsons fan. I think that came off pretty clear on that episode. Jeff and I, it's one of the things that we talk a lot about. Getting Fat Tony to talk about the Simpsons was just kind of this perfect encapsulation of what we were trying to do with the show was just to get somebody who clearly has an influence from it got asked he was the artist who got asked simpsons questions like eight years ago and now it's like nobody has fat tony simpsons questions anymore because it's like no one's asking where his name come from he's done so much incredible music he's he's had media experience you know he's done tv shows web shows whatever like he doesn't need to answer that question anymore. So I wasn't there to ask him that question. It's like, let's talk about The Simpsons because it was something that you drew from early on in your career. It stuck with you without kind of overwhelming your brand. Let's let's talk about it. And I think that's what I'm trying to do with this is let's talk to people about interesting pop culturally stuff, even if it's something referenced. And I get that people kind of see what I'm doing and go, oh, he must, it must be a joke. He must be joking what he's doing. And it's like, there's humor in it. I mean, we're clearly, you know, we're having fun and there's some jokey stuff that goes on, but like the premise is still, we're just trying to be human beings to each other and be decent in the middle of, of a terrible pandemic to do something that just brings us together and for you know an hour we just are able to have a little fun with each other. I like to use humor to promote the show. That is something that I have no apologies about because mm-hmm. you're trying to get someone's attention. So for the Leprechaun season, I made a bunch of parody covers of classic hip hop albums. So it's just like we put the Leprechaun onto Dr. Dre's The Chronic. You put the Leprechaun onto Red Man's Dare's a Dark Side. Like you just find ways to just get it in front of people and get their attention. This isn't, again, this is a podcast that I'm doing, like with the pod, like with the newsletter. It's a podcast that I do in like a bedroom. I don't, you know, I'm not in a professional studio. Nobody is, you know, we are doing this just with the tools that we have at home. So if I have to find a creative way to get you to check it out, I'm going to. And I think that we're doing a, a, a quality program that, is a good ancillary to what we're doing, what I'm doing on the newsletter, and is a great way to uh, to help promote these artists whose music I care about. It also goes back to something that I know that we talked about the one time that we did meet about the problem that a lot of music critics and music people have, which is that they can only talk about music. Like that's the only thing that they can formulate opinions on. And you could just- get You remember that conversation, okay. I did, yeah. <laughs> It's it's one that I, I try and keep in mind when, when talking to other people because as you know, someone who does his own music podcast and writes about music, it's like, yeah, I probably don't want to talk people's ears off about that all the time and just make it seem like that's the only thing that's going on in my brain. Yeah, it's like, look, if you want to talk about heavy metal, I can talk about heavy metal all day. If you want to talk about hip hop, I can talk about hip hop all day. If you want to talk about jazz, I'd love to have that discussion in theory, but I don't actually want to have those discussions when I spend so much of my alone time, so much of my working time thinking about these things, listening to music and writing about it, there's nothing beneficial to me on a social level to just talking about music with somebody. You know, at some stage it just becomes very boring. And if I can't 
switch up that conversation and talk about something else with you, it's going to be a conversation I'm going to want to get out of very quickly. You know, <laughs> I do look, I go on podcasts and I talk about music. Most people nowadays want me on the podcast to talk about the newsletter or talk about the new podcast. Like, and that's, that's great. I'm happy to do those because I feel like it's, it's interesting, but I, I go on the other ones where it's just, you know, they want to ask me about like my opinions about music and it's like, great. I'm happy to, I'm happy to get the opportunity that anybody wants to talk to me about anything. But, you know, if I'm out at a bar or if I'm out at a restaurant, you know, back when you used to do those things, I, the last thing I want to do is just spend two hours talking about music with somebody. It's not interesting. Yeah, I, it's, again, not to be too utilitarian about it, but I also feel like it's just like a useful skill for any writer to pick up is like have other interests, <laughs> be concerned with other things, like read about other subjects and it actually will probably improve your work. Like, I think that that's something that I love in a lot of your preambles is you'll, for the newsletter is you'll have references to other things or your awareness of these other subjects or other parts of life will inform the way that you write about music. And I think it, it makes your work more readable and more, there's more to take away from it as a result, at least the way I see it. I mean, again, and I appreciate that you, that you, you see it that way, you know, I'm trying to find common ground, whether it's with a reader, with an artist. I'm trying to find something that we can we can connect on, and it, it doesn't have to be the music itself. It's like I do. I've done very straightforward interviews with people before, and you talk about very straightforward things, and then you get the opportunity to sit down in a room with somebody and have a real conversation. You know, as as I have many times in the past, and it's like I don't want to waste that opportunity. I don't want it to just be the thing. So it's like I'm happy when an artist is willing to have that conversation with me. And I feel like when I write now, I'm less inclined to just do something straightforward. I think that music has found its way into pop culture in so many different ways that there's there's something to be said about looking for the pop culture threads to bring back into music, you know? I think you could talk to most artists of a certain age at this point about video games. I think mm-hmm. you talk to a lot of artists about sports. I think you talk to a lot of artists about books. You know, I think it's just about finding what those things are. If you get a sense that someone knows how to cook, you talk about that. You know, if you get a sense that somebody understands something about the world that maybe you don't, ask them about it. And it can lead to a very interesting discussion versus the, well, where do you get your ideas from? Which is the worst question i mean that no one should ask (laughs) right i mean if you ask those other questions that will probably give you the answer to where do you get your ideas from in a you know more holistic way whereas like just asking someone a question that broad is where do you get your ideas from doesn't spark anything in someone's mind because it immediately becomes like a work question yeah i mean like i do the q a style the short three question q a's in the newsletter intentionally that way because it's just a short experience a short encounter generally the people who respond to these three questions and they change for each artist they're tailored for each artist they give a maybe a paragraph's worth of of a reply and that's great and that's just bite size but if i'm going to sit down and get on the phone with you i want to talk more like when i i talked to ishmael butler of shabazz palaces and diggable planets i was keenly interested in sort of his thoughts on process and how he got there ended up being 
finding out sort of his views on jazz. We weren't even talking about hip hop and sort of getting into Sun Ra and Afrofuturism and some of the books he'd been reading. And that made it a much more interesting discussion. You know, I could have sat there and asked him a bunch of questions about what was it like in the 90s in Diggable Planets and winning a Grammy and all that. Like, sure, someone's asked him that before. Plenty of people have asked him that before. But he's been making so much more music since then as Shabazz Palaces that it's like, we now understand what you're trying to do musically. Let's, uh, let's dig a little deeper and maybe get a bit more about you in that conversation. So my hope is that, I don't think I'm there yet. I, my hope is that I will be a better interviewer by figuring out what people want to talk about and then talking to them about that. I'm sensing a, a bit of a recurring theme here of asking questions that are not normally asked and also promoting artists that are undercovered by let's call it mainstream or larger publications. I wanted to ask about whether there was a difference between just artists that are undercovered that maybe just haven't gotten to a place in their career yet that they haven't gotten too much exposure or whether there are artists that you just know that you couldn't necessarily pitch to a lot of the places that you write freelance for, for reasons of style or aesthetics or hype or whatever. So when you're choosing what artists to promote and what to feature both on your podcast and in the newsletter, are, are, is it more just a numbers game about like what is not getting promoted or do you have like specific things that you know are getting ignored? that you want to highlight? There's a whole class of artists that are never going to be covered in any serious way based on the current structure of the quote unquote mainstream music media. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll get one of their albums or mixtapes reviewed on Pitchfork. And that'll be like the thing that happens for them. We know that a Pitchfork review nowadays does not translate into success. We recognize that, you know, they do five reviews a day, five days a week, and they do a classic album review on Sunday. So you're in there and that's a great thing to have on your list and, and to pull that from, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee future patronage. I'm trying to identify this artists within this class of artists that maybe are never necessarily going to get that moment in Pitchfork or is never going to be a major label artist, not necessarily even that they want to be a major label artist. I think that the standards for success that are judged by many of the outlets that I pitch are so quantitative in terms of the reality, although there are plenty of editors who take risks on stuff that I do, and I'm always appreciative when they do that. I think that I'm simply trying to say, here are artists whose music I'm enjoying. I'd love for you to check it out too, because there's just so much incredible hip hop music right now. There's so many hugely talented producers and rappers who are never going to get on the radio or onto the cool playlists or whatever. And many that I do talk about do end up in some good places or have already been in some good places. You know, some of these are artists who I've been writing about, you know, since I was doing capsule reviews at the quietest, you know, six, seven years ago. 
Mm-hmm. The, the point is, is that I'm trying to treat this as if I were going to recommend to you, here's what I'm listening to right now, three, three things every week. Here's some things I'm enjoying that came out recently. I think that the recommendation engine has gone away so much from the media. The media has lost the sort of gatekeeping aspect of being able to be tastemakers and are often stuck in this cycle of promoting what's there. And sure enough, it's almost always major label content. And that's a very tiresome thing to be in when you recognize that you're in it. But the freedom of I'm not beholden to any labels. You know, if Universal Music decided they didn't want to send me promos, you know, send me any more press releases, you know, I would I would get over it. <laughs> it's it's not the end of the world for me to do that. Versus for a, a major outlet, they can't afford to damage those relationships because they need the access. You know, so I look at it as. I'm not looking at it from a numbers perspective. I'm looking at it as, are you doing something interesting? Are you independent or self-released? I'm inclined to check you out. I may not like your music. And if I don't like your music, I'm not going to write about it because I'm not going to punch down. But if I do like what I'm hearing, I can use my platform, which is catering to people who are interested in hip hop beyond the quote unquote mainstream. If I can put you in front of those people, I might help you sell some more records or get some more streams going. Or, you know, when we get out of this pandemic, put you in a position where you, when you tour, you might get another few more people in the room who found out about you through the newsletter. That to me is a win for everybody. I suppose a more articulate way of asking that question when it comes to what I meant by the numbers game is, is it that there are certain styles that don't get covered or certain scenes that don't get covered? Or is it just that the larger publications are pretty much locked into covering artists that they always have covered, that they know that they're going to get clicks from and that they, as you said, have this access relationship built in with. I think, I think there's, there's some nuance to it. You know, I think that you're looking to what's popular and making determinations based on that because of how much easier it is now to quantitatively determine what a popular artist is beyond the billboard charts. You have YouTube views that are publicly visible and easily drill downable in terms of country and region. You have TikTok, you have Spotify, Again, streaming numbers that are publicly available, you know, you can figure out who's doing something. And then, of course, you have the publicist side of it where, you know, if an artist is really popping off, they've got one of a relatively finite group of publicists working for them. Um, if they're in a, if they're working in the major label system, then that's, you know, usually done in house, but there's also plenty of that that goes on. And that includes indie artists too. Like even the indie artists who get covered, it's just like, well, they've got some kind of good indie PR representation from those who specialize in these areas. And I work with those folks too. I work with those publicists. I've got nothing against them, but it's like, I find a lot of cool shit on Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. I find out about something because an artist who I follow on Instagram did a feature on their latest mixtape you know, or, you know, or recommends them. 
I, I go from those sorts of places because you're going to find a really cool artist, not to say before other people do, but you're going to find an artist who doesn't necessarily have the representation that gets them into those places. You know, I'm always telling people because I, I've written for some big places and I write for big places. And there was like, how do I get into Forbes? And it's just like, you don't get into Forbes. And if I wrote about you as a relatively unknown artist in Forbes, it would get fewer views than if I interviewed you in my fucking newsletter. That's the thing that a lot of these artists aren't going to get is like, you can get that big look, but it's going to do poorly on platform, which is going to make these bigger outlets go, well, we took a risk and it didn't work out and we're not going to work with that artist again. Like, you know, <laughs> they're going to do your track premiere and see that it got a hundred views and go, well, why would I do that again? When like, I can talk about, you know, what shampoo Drake is using this week and get a hundred thousand, you know, views. It's, it's simply that like recognizing that where you're, where you can do the most good doesn't necessarily exist in these mainstream spaces where you can cultivate a following online doesn't necessarily have to be in a marquee name publication. If that happens for you, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Congratulations. But I'm hoping with what I'm doing that I can I can do that that sort of work for them. I don't know if that answers your question fully, but I do want to say that there is a litmus test for what I can pitch to a publication. If I think I can pitch an interview to one of my outlets, I'm a working freelance writer. I'm going to do it. But I recognize that there are plenty of opportunities where I won't be able to. However, there are plenty of, of instances, particularly recently, where I have had the opportunity to talk to an artist and say, well, I could pitch this to an outlet or I can take it for myself and use it in my publication, in my newsletter, and it become something that I promote and I don't sell it off. That to me is of value too, as I grow the Cabbage's platform. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. I, I wondered how you navigated that question of whether to take something that you know you could get maybe the immediate or not immediate knowing the way that invoices work but the upfront yeah. check for the freelance work versus using that to build your own platform and maybe get more subscribers in the long run or just even have it for yourself just to own it for the sake of of owning it how how do you balance those two things I mean, it's not, that's not an exact science by any stretch, but it is a decision-making process. It's like, I'll give you an example. There's uh, a guy uh, who, who played guitar on the new Bad Bunny album, uh, McCougan. And he is somebody who followed me on Twitter and had interacted with me over the years. He had been in some indie bands and then and really cool projects and then uh, moved out to L.A and uh, was doing the kind of songwriting thing there and gotten some some pickup and then ended up playing guitar on this album and he didn't really have like a lot of twitter followers but he posted a thing shortly after the album came out about which, which songs he had worked on and because he was in my circle i was just like 
I reached out to him and said, hey, if you ever want to talk about you're working on this album that became the number one album in the country that week, um, let me know. I could have said, hmm, let me see if I could pitch this story somewhere. And then I thought about what the nature of that conversation would look like in the pages of, I'm not going to name a publication, but in the pages of a mainstream music publication and my newsletter. In my newsletter, I could do something a bit longer, conversational, that would be useful for people to understand how this came about, how this collaboration came about. If I pitched it somewhere else, it would allow for some snippets. Uh, it would be probably just some quotes woven into a story. It would be short. It would be done. Mm-hmm. I chose to go with my newsletter route, and it got a very good response rate uh, in terms of uh, views for, for my side of things. And it also seems to have prompted good journalists to do the, exactly that first kind of coverage I was talking about in mainstream publications, to reach out to him for quotes about the album or they're working on, uh, on pieces about it. So I feel like I did my job in that scenario where I got him to be able to talk unfiltered and then allow him to get those, those media looks from there because it was a big moment for him. Am I going to credit myself with having, you know, discovered him or, you know, have really done the work he would have been known? No, they would have figured it out at some point. I got there first and I got there first on a platform of my own creation. And that felt pretty good. I'm glad that you also brought up other journalists because you also have another part of your newsletter where you promote other writing about hip hop. Usually it seems like stuff that has been published that week. And I was wondering what your curation process was for that. And also whether you see part of your mission to your mission with the newsletter is to promote other writers as well as kind of to help build this community of writers that are all covering the same beat. You know, as much as I've kind of, you know, punched up at mainstream publications over the course of this conversation, there are some hugely talented writers working at a lot of these outlets, both in a staff and a freelance capacity. And so there's a great deal of, of writing that comes out, especially now, especially now with the mindfulness of social justice and the mindfulness of, of Me Too, that we're getting some great stories and, you know, and we're getting some great interviews. And I wanted to use the newsletter as a way to kind of highlight that work because it's hard for people to self-promote. Not everybody is a self-promoter. Um, I sure as fuck am, but I saw it as an opportunity to uh, help spread the word and maybe get them a little more visibility. So the first step of curation is stuff I like in there. The second is that I do favor BIPOC writers. Uh, I do try to make sure that representation is, is a big part of what I do with the newsletter in general. And so, you know, I've got, as I kind of work through one, I look at what did I enjoy reading? You know, it's not always about something that's like incredible writing that is just, you know, jaw dropping. Sometimes it's just an analysis of a scene that isn't getting a lot of coverage. Like I'm working on a newsletter right now. And one of the pieces I'm including for, uh, from another writer is about the drill scene in Ghana. Hmm. And it's something that I had no, no visibility on, but you know, somebody wrote a primer and it's just short, 
but effective primer and it, it, it follows a, a templated format in terms of you know there's an intro and then it talks about some individual artists and I was like that's great that's getting included in there finding that visibility I like to make sure that the newsletter is inclusive of identifiably LGBTQ plus writers as well as uh, you know queer artists and I think that those are good factors to uh, to help populate it because I want the newsletter to feel like a space where those writers and those artists should feel comfortable. I do try to make sure that that's part of how I approach this. And again, I have to like what you're writing. I have to like what you're writing about uh, in theory. And I have to like uh, the music if it's an artist, you know, I'm not making these things based purely on demographic or identity politics focused things, but it does absolutely factor in when I see how much, in the mainstream media, you get white rappers will get a ton of coverage around stuff, and I don't necessarily see the same happen around those who don't fit a particular mode or series of of molds. So, why do you think you are such a good self promoter? Like, has that always been something that's been part of your personality, or is that something you've grown into doing? Oh yeah, I mean, I did like I did like you know drama classes as a kid. You know, I was doing stuff like that. Like I've never been like, I've never been afraid of getting up in front of an audience. I enjoy that. You know, I went to school for marketing. I'm not, I'm an introvert to an extent that, you know, I'm happy to not talk to anybody on any given night um, and just be left alone. But if you put me in a social situation and you need me to talk, I will talk. If you put me on a stage, I'll never shut up. (laughs) It's like, I'm generally that sort of person. And I I don't feel like as somebody who has that affinity and went to school for marketing, just self-promotion just makes a lot of sense. And I'm not one of those, you know, weirdo influencer types who's like trying to cultivate a thing. Like this is a lot of it's very raw. You know, I, what I use Twitter for tends to be just what's popping off in my head at a particular moment. It's flawed. It's imperfect. Uh, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's topically relevant. Sometimes it starts conversations. Plenty of other times it's just, okay, that's just what he said. And, you know, two people hit like on it and everyone else moved on and that's okay too. Yeah. I, I, I that's always been the way I, I am. Um, and I don't think that's ever going to change about me. You know, again, I'm happy to be left alone in a lot of situations, but if I create something and I'm proud of it, I'm going to tell you about it. Now it makes uh, sense that you consider being a stand-up comedian as well. That seems to be same kind of mentality. Did you ever perform music as well? Or yeah, was- yeah, I did. Uh, and the the most recent thing I did was earlier in the, the 2010s. I did like kind of a noise rock punk thing, mm-hmm. uh, this band called Human Toilet. And it was just, uh, it was right, uh, it started right at the... Uh, at the uh, tail end of my divorce uh, with my first wife. And so I had a lot of things that I was uh, feeling and basically screaming in a, uh, in a kind of noise rock band felt like a lot of fun with some friends. And that's sort of what I did, but you know, I never looked at it in the perspective of, Oh man, we're going to like go on tour. You know, we're going to like do the whole fucking thing. Like, no, it was like, we, were people who were like mostly working office jobs at the time. So we could afford to like press up a couple records, you know, to we could afford some studio time to record a few songs here and there. You know, we did a second record 
Uh, we did a first record that was like eight songs, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, we put on vinyl. And then we did a second record, which was just a three-song EP. Uh, we worked with Martin B.C., uh, who, oh, shit. Yeah. you know, BC, Sonic Youth, and, you know, I mean, my God, who didn't BC work with, Who who's amazing? We worked with BC and did this three-song set, which was a lot of fun. And then we didn't put that out in any physical format, but I think I can reveal this here. We are uh, going to have a short uh, vinyl run of that EP uh, come out through Hospital Productions this year. Which oh, really fuck yeah. yeah, so that's uh, that's something that's coming. I don't think they've announced it just yet, but I don't think anyone's going to care if I say anything on a, on a show because it's not like we're going to be, you know, doing 20,000 copies. Of it. You know, it's something that we uh, we got approached about. Uh, our, the basis of the band, Tommy, has, uh, has a relationship with those guys and he played them our music and they really liked it. So we, we ended up uh, agreeing to do this thing with them. So, yeah, it's kind of funny and surreal to me that anybody was interested in this little project that I did uh, during a particularly chaotic period of my life. <laughs> um, um, things are much more stable for me now, but it's, uh, it's fun. But, yeah, there's no expectation for me that I'm going to you know, be a, a rock star. And I think that all that stuff is fun, when, uh, is, is fun up until a point. You know, people who really want to be big in music, whatever that means, that's a that's a drive that I don't have. As a writer, that's really where my creative strengths lie, and that's kind of where I want to be. That that was around the same time that you would have been covering Noise Rocket Metal Sucks, right? I remember reading a lot of your stuff back then, around like two thousand nine or so. Yeah, I started off with Metal Sucks writing a Noise Rock column, and that's mm-hmm. sort of been my my introduction to that space where it's just like there was this revival of noise rock that was happening uh particularly in the u.s and new york had a really good scene uh, with bands like wet nurse and i really wanted to uh to have a space to write about it metal sucks gave me that space over time i did more things for them and, and wrote about other stuff but noise rock was the kind of original introduction for me over there yeah i think i before i rediscovered that you like you as a hip-hop journalist and on twitter i always remembered you as the guy that wrote the oceano review oh sure yeah (laughs) which kind of carries right over into all the stuff that you've written since and that i couldn't tell if you were serious or not like it felt like it was a joke but then it's like oh no he actually is serious and this is a better review because of it and i feel like that's true of a lot of your stuff is that you have this like humor hook that then brings in people into the more serious content I mean, there's definitely my comedy brain is is in here and I'm looking for even if it's just a small turn of a phrase or a little alliteration here and there, like there's something that that's going to try to come through because I am thinking of something that I find funny and maybe someone else will find funny in it. You know, I'm grateful for the time that I, I did that. You know, it's always funny to me when I talk to people about what they associate me with, you know, <laughs> because I've written for, I mean, I've been doing this for over 20 years now. And when you, when you write, when you write about different styles of music, when you are a, a generalist, as I have long considered myself, you end up meeting people in different ways. So like you brought up metal sucks. You know, I, I did a, a podcast recently where I was kind of known as the Latin music journalist. And that's kind of how they had approached me. There are others who know me primarily for, for hip hop. 
And there are others who know me even further back for like writing about electronic stuff. You know, I've, I've written about all these genres in one capacity or another over the years, you know, I kind of became more focused on writing about hip hop in the 2010s, you know, probably starting in like 2012 or so, but I was writing about hip hop back in like 2001 and 2002 as well. So it's, it's something where I always find it curious for people to go like, Oh, I know you for this, but I, I've never, I've never seen myself as just one type of genre focused journalist, even if like it may be a stint or a period of time where that's the bulk of what I'm writing about. And remind me if this is, if this is correct, but you've got a zine version of cabbages coming out as well. Well, I was going to do it. Uh, it was, it was a, it was an idea that I had. I wanted to do a cabbages zine. I had done some longer form interviews with some really fantastic artists. And, you know, this past year has been a tough one. And I just didn't see, I just couldn't justify putting in the, uh, the expense, you know, I'm not making like, you know, I'm not making, you know, six figures off of my little newsletter. I'll tell you that. So it's, it's something where I had to make a call. What I ended up doing is I took some of those longer form interviews and put them out in the newsletter around the holidays. So there was an interview with cool Keith. Uh, there was an interview with Billy Woods and so like stuff like that, which would have been kind of feature content in the zine went in there. I haven't abandoned the idea of doing a zine or some other physical product around the, uh, the newsletter. It's just, I, I need some more support in terms of building up the paid subscribership to, uh, so that way I feel like I, I have this support base that if I put something out, it's not just going to sit in boxes around my apartment. Certainly. Um, so since you have been doing this for a year, and obviously, as you said, you've been writing for a long time prior to that. So I apologize if this comes off as condescending. I don't mean it to be. I, do you feel like you have gotten better at doing cabbages? And do you feel like there's something, ways that you've improved as a writer from doing cabbages on a weekly basis for over a year now? Oh, 100%. Now, the the idea is is the the constant writing and... I mean, I think the first, if I look at the first newsletters, two of the more recent ones, I mean, like, obviously the format is, has, has, has changed somewhat, but like, I think the quality of the writing is much better because it's the, it's being in practice, you know, when you're a freelance writer and you write for multiple publications, which is what I do, you're forced to conform to an extent to brand voice. You know, I don't, I'm not precious about my prose that it's like, I'm an auteur and you have to respect my vision. It's like, no, if I'm writing service journalism, I'm writing service journalism. That's fine. I need the money uh, or I care about this and I need the money. That's great. The newsletter is a place for me to do my writing. And I think it's, it's been a tremendous driver for me as a writer. I, I, you know, I always talk to younger writers who are just like, should I write for free? Like, what should I do? How should I push my career forward? And just like, the key thing is developing your voice. So that way, when you have the opportunity to really write in your voice, it's, it's there. It's there for you to reach for. You know, most of the time, if you get a staff job at a publication, you are writing in brand voice and you're doing that consistently day in, day out. And that's a grind, you know. It's nice if you have healthcare, but it's a grind. I try very hard to adhere to brand voice when I'm writing for publications because 
I want to consistently get work. And do I fit myself in there as well? Sure. But the newsletter is, is the most incredible opportunity to date for me to work on my voice as a writer. And I feel really good about what I've been able to accomplish in a year doing that, if nothing else. And so what plans do you have or do you even have any plans or anything concrete that you'd like to push into the next year of cabbages? Like how do you want to improve the newsletter and the podcast and the cabbages extended universe going forward? I'd love to be able to build up enough paid subscribers where I could bring in some writers I like to do some pieces at least once in a while. I'd like to bring some other voices who I, whose work I admire and care about into the fold. I'd like to be able to do that. You know, I'm not trying to become a, a media mogul by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that maybe some people might value reading some other perspectives in there. I'd love just to, to build that through, you know, otherwise, you know, the podcast, you know, we'll do for this season and then we'll reassess, you know, I can always do a, a different kind of podcast at some point. I have the means to do it now. And that's, that's, that's something that's, that's helpful. I've gotten, I got some, I got some, ex, some equipment for Christmas that helps uh, improve the quality of the program, I think, which is good too. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, it, it's something where I, I don't have like a, a five year plan or something for, for what this is, because I don't think that as the, as we learned from the from Defector, you can take what they did at Deadspin and move it into a subscriber model and be successful. But that doesn't necessarily apply to music journalism and to music right. criticism. Like we we I have been part of discussions where there has been a desire to try to replicate that success or figure out a version of it that doesn't require you know, venture capital or uh, corporate ownership uh, to fund it. You know, something that is subscriber based, and there's, those have been difficult discussions because there's we all know any of us who've been doing this long enough that it's not the same as sports. It's not the same as politics. If you go on Substack right now and look at what the most popular newsletters are, they're almost all politics focused. You know, I'm a drop in the bucket compared to what they're doing. But, you know, to me, I'm not looking to be the, the biggest, the biggest in what, in any, in, in this field, because to be the biggest in, in this field would require compromise that I'm not comfortable doing. The whole point is when you're signing up for cabbages, you're getting my voice and you're getting my opinions and my thoughts. And I'm going to try to produce a high quality work from that. But, I'm not going to, you know, do it. Like, look, if, if if Drake wants to talk to me for the newsletter, sure, I'll talk to him. If Nicki Minaj wants to talk to me for the newsletter, sure, I talk to them. You know, I don't know necessarily what I would get from that conversation beyond views that would be worth the discussion, to be honest. I much rather focus on things that I care about and build an audience of people say, like, if I get to a few thousand people at the end of the day who are just like, hey, we value your your opinions. We like what you write about, and we appreciate the recommendations each week. It gives me something to check out that isn't necessarily being flagged by the streaming services. That that's a win for me. So, you know, I don't know necessarily if I'm going to be doing crazy things while there's a pandemic going on. 
after, after this, maybe I can do more, but I have to be realistic. It sounds like there's a real synchronicity between your approach to the newsletter and cabbages in general about making it sustainable, delivering exactly what you want to deliver and that the readers would want to read. And that seems completely in line with the artists that you're covering too. Like the independent mindset exists both in the form and the content, which just makes it really cool as like a, it's this cool community where you know that the person writing has a lot of the same values about what they're making as the artists that you're promoting. Yeah, I want to be able to, 20 years from now, have these artists be like, oh, yeah, I did that interview in Cabbages. That was pretty cool. Or you reviewed that record. That was like one of the first times I got some press coverage and it, it made me, it encouraged me. It made me feel like I should do more stuff. You know, if I can establish even that level of relationship with an artist, you know, I'm not looking to be anybody's friend. You know, I have enough mm -hmm. friends. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm good <laughs> on that front. But if I can help encourage somebody doing a thing who's otherwise discouraged that maybe they're not getting where they want to be in their music careers, if I can help them a little bit in that respect, because I, I, I think they're doing good work, that's fantastic. You know, and if I can try to rectify some of the blind spots that exist in other publications in my own small way, that's worthwhile to me as well. Awesome. Well, that pretty much covers it for me. I do just want to say as from my own perspective, as someone who's, you know, done a bit of freelance, nowhere near as much as you have, but has sort of gone off on my own trail. Now I find what you're doing to be very uh, inspiring. And I, I love reading cabbages in part because I love, you know, learning about new music, but it's also really cool to see a, a writer making something independently and, you know, gaining traction with it. It's just, it's really cool to see. So thank you so much for spending the time tonight. No, thank you for, uh, thank you for having me and thank you for the good questions. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Have a good one, man. All right. You too. Thank you again for listening and thank you, Gary, for joining me. You can subscribe to Cabbages at cabbages.substack.com. You can find the Cabbages podcast wherever podcasts are found. The same goes for this very platform, with the exception of Spotify. And if you like this episode, please give us a good rating and review. If you'd like to share your thoughts about this episode or any other episodes that you've listened to, any future stuff that you'd like to see on the podcast, please email me at laminaformsband at gmail.com. Until next time.